Please stand as you are able for today's scripture reading. Today's lesson comes from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Hear these words. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise dispenses knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perversance in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises a parent's instruction, but the one that heeds admonition is prudent. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise are spread knowledge, not so the minds of fools. This is the word of God for the people of the God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mike, for reading our lesson this morning and greetings to you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's a touch of fall, just a hint of fall in the air this morning. It was 59 degrees by my read on the back porch, which was good news, uh, but will not be long lasting apparently. But we look forward to cooler days that follow in a week or two. And uh, it was wonderful to see this child this morning follow in the footsteps of her mother, as Joe said, a family tradition, and uh, we're grateful to see each of you. We, uh, if you are visiting with us today, we are right at the turn, we are right at the midpoint of this series that we've been calling Wise Up. We're continuing this journey through Proverbs. I've never done a series on Proverbs until this fall. And we're talking about the fact that we live in the age of information, or what sometimes we call the age of information overload, and we're in need of wisdom. We're searching for wisdom, and I'm not talking about data, I'm not talking about statistics, I'm not talking about facts and figures, although that's important. I'm talking about what the Hebrew people called in Hebrew, hakma, hakma, which means prudence. Literally, it means insight. It can mean skill or discretion or discernment. To date, over these last four weeks, we've considered the correlation between wisdom and reverence. We've said wisdom begins with reverence for God, and the antithesis is also true. Foolishness begins with irreverence for God. We talked about the correlation between wisdom and trust. Lean on God. Put your whole weight on God, says Proverbs 3, 5, and lean not only on your own perception or perspective. And then we turn to talk about wisdom and the work ethic. The vocation of work is God's idea in the design of creation. It is not a curse, it is a blessing. And then last week we talked about the correlation of wisdom and discipline or wisdom and self-control. And we saw how, even in children, that one of the greatest indicators of success or fruitfulness in life is their capacity to delay gratification 
or to control themselves. This morning, I want to turn to the connection between wisdom and speech. I think it's still true today that the most effective means of communication in the world is not television. To the contrary, (laughs) it's not cable news. The most effective means of communication is not print, it's not the morning newspaper, nor is it social media. You know what the most important, most effective means of communication is? It's word of mouth. It still is word of mouth. According to the Hebrew teachers, the clearest test of wisdom is found in the litmus of speech, the way we talk, the way we talk to each other, the way we talk about each other or of each other. The mouth is the channel of the heart, and the heart is the reservoir of the lips. Jesus knew it. That's why he said in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In fact, in Jesus' mind, so important is the way that we talk that he goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 35 and 36, every person will give an account of every empty word spoken. For by our words, we'll be acquitted and by our words will be condemned. Or as one postmodern guru said, wisdom is knowing when to speak your mind and when to mind your speech. We could use a dose of that in 2019. The wisdom literature has as much or more to say on this subject of speech than any other subject in 31 chapters. In fact, if you examine chapter 15 alone, it's all over the page. Chapter 15, verse 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Chapter 15, verse 7, the lips of the wise give good advice. The heart of a fool has none to give. Chapter 15, verse 23, everybody enjoys a fitting reply. The right word at the right time is a good thing. Verse 26, the Lord detests evil plans, but he delights in pure words. And then my favorite, chapter 15, verse 28, the heart of the godly thinks before speaking. Now there's an idea. Good public speaking is always based on good private thinking. I've heard it said before, well, he just speaks whatever crosses his mind. And one of the keys to wise speech, according to Solomon, is restraint. Restraint. Chapter 10, verse 19, the more talk, the less truth. That's why a counselor or a lawyer, a judge will say, thou dost protest too much to a child. The more talk, the less truth. The wise measure their words. This is difficult for preachers, but you already know that. It reminds me of another adage that's attributed to two people, either Mark Twain or Abe Lincoln, who said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. (laughs) 
There's a little-known verse in the Catholic Bible, in the middle, in the Apocrypha, in a book called The Wisdoms of Sirach, which says this. I love this verse. Make balances and scales for your words and make a door and a bolt for your mouth. That's a good word. Keith Whitley wrote a song years ago that says it best. You say it best when you say nothing at all. Restraint. Last week after the 11 o'clock service, just after the benediction, right after the benediction, the fire alarm went off and we were already leaving. We evacuated the building. And as we were leaving, one wise guy looked over to me and said, it's a shame that that thing didn't go off 30 minutes before. <laughs> now, I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, his initials are George Grizel. And you'll be glad to know that I showed some restraint, but I've got plans. <laughs> but I've noticed in our culture, present company excluded, of course, that we're often more adept at hip shooting. You notice that? We're often more efficient at mouthing off than we are at restraint. Sometimes we're more fluent in the language of complaint than we are in the language of praise, which is our native tongue. It was Lily Tomlin who said language was invented because of our deep and inner need to complain. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there's a new genre of literature out in some of the bookstores. It's called Wrath Lit. Published, written rants on various topics in fact, I discovered that Peter Wood, in his book called A Bee in the Mouth, that's an interesting title, A Bee in the Mouth, says that in these books, quote, declaring absolute hatred for one's opponent has become a sign not of self-excess, but of good character, <laughs> as though to be hateful is a badge of honor. And I know, I know, sometimes we justify the rhetoric by saying, well, I'm just trying to be real. I'm trying to be authentic, and authenticity has its place. But did you know it's possible to be authentically rude? Did you know it's possible to be sincerely offensive <laughs> and judgmental? Sometimes we rationalize our lack of restraint by saying, well, I've been hurt but I'm not sure that my hurt justifies me hurting you. And it doesn't sound at all like Jesus, who said strange things, like turn the cheek, like go the second mile. Who are you kidding? Like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Harsh words often reveal a war within, a lack of self-restraint, and sometimes a failure of boundaries in my own life. Restraint. That leads to another key point, I think, about wisdom and speech, wise speech, and that's simply this. It's not just what we say, <laughs> it's how we say it. Have you ever noticed that's really what gets us more in trouble than anything else. It's not substance. It's not content that matters, not alone. It's tone. 
And sometimes the substance of the message get lost, gets lost in the emotion or the inflection or the intonation, the tone. When you get right down to it, I think this is the crux of chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer, or some texts say a soft answer, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's interesting to me. In the Hebrew tongue, the word for gentle is found no less than 18 times in 31 chapters in Proverbs, and literally it means soft or tender. It means compassionate. It means delicate, and in some cases, it even means weak. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like to appear weak. In fact, to be honest with you, my natural response to wrath is wrath. But wisdom teaches us a different way, a response that actually diffuses the heat rather than exacerbating it, a tender tone, a gentle response. Every now and then I'll talk to young clergy about leadership, and one of the things that I've learned in leadership is the importance of learning to take a punch without delivering one in response. Boxers train for this. They understand that. They not only train to give an uppercut, but to take a punch. Although I do remember something Mike Tyson once said. He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And then the plan goes out the window. But when you think about it, the strongest people, the wisest people that I've ever met are not known to hit back, but to take a punch, to take a hit without delivering one in response. And so restraint and tone is critical to wise speech. Now, unfortunately, sometimes, and I'm speaking for me personally, sometimes I go a little tone deaf. You know that term? You've heard that term before. It's actually a musical term. Uh, The technical term for tone deaf is dysmusia, D-Y-S, dysmusia, which I discovered is a form of musical dyslexia, that it's it's in 4% of the population. If we have 500 people here, then 4% of you have this illness, this dyslexia, musical dyslexia, and when you sing the hymns, What happens is you think you're singing the right note, and yet you're on a different key all to yourself. I don't know if we have any choir members that way, but it's a real thing in 4% that we have the, it's, we're incapable of distinguishing the notes and the pitch. And even when you think you hit the right one, you may be in disharmony with the ensemble tone deaf. But we not only use it in its, medi- in its musical terms, it's become a metaphor, and you use it sometimes, for folks who have a tendency to become oblivious to context or, or become sort of unaware or imperceptive of different nuances and facets of a given situation. i give you an example. Anybody know the name Florence Foster Jenkins? Have you heard that name before? Anybody? A soprano, 
in the early 1900s who loved to sing the great operatic classics. She inherited a bundle of money when she was about 50, which funded her musical career, and suddenly her popularity skyrocketed, and she held personal recitals in New York City, places like the Ritz-Carlton, and even sang one night in Carnegie Hall. But as one writer put it, history agrees, and I quote, with hands held over its ears that she couldn't sing for sour apples. In fact, behind her back, they called her the tone-deaf diva. They called her the terror of the high seas. <laughs> and they made a movie about her. You can see Meryl Streep played the part. That's her real picture on the other part of the slide. And you may not forgive me for this, but I've got a little recording of the actual singing of Florence Foster Jenkins. It proves my point. Listen. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I want to apologize to you for that. It's never happened before, and I promise it'll never happen again if you come back. But there's a point. She was tone deaf, and she didn't know it. She didn't have a clue. I mean, when I hear it, it's not even a joyful noise. <laughs> and sometimes I've noticed that we, too, suffer from a similar malady. It's not musical, sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's ethical, sometimes it's personal, this imperceptive, insensitive sense when I cannot see what is right before me. I think this malady is not just about IQ, it's not about information or intelligence, it's about EQ, it's emotional intelligence, it's awareness around us tone deaf. There's one other point that I want to mention about wise speech. As important as restraint is, as important as content is, and tone and all of that, there's another form of speech that is equally important, but it's nonverbal. It's called body language. The biblical word for body language is countenance. In the Hebrew, it means face. It, it, it means your face. Cicero said that the face is the portrait of the soul. Well, I think that's true. It's your visage. It's your demeanor. And, and so sometimes, even from this lofty perch, I, I can look at you and I can see something about where you are today. I can see it by your visage, by your countenance. What does your demeanor say? You know, it speaks whether you mean for it to or not. It does. What does your countenance say? It affects community, body language, whether you know it or not. 
I was thinking the other day, one of my pet peeves is to be in a meeting occasionally and the person speaking at the lectern and then there's someone at the table who is completely inattentive to them. They're looking at their cell phone. They're reading a page out of a book. They're staring, counting the ceiling tiles or something, everything but paying attention. Or to be in a meeting, maybe you've been there, where someone says something and somebody else sort of rolls their eyes, crosses their arms, <sighs> heaves a big sigh. That's a pet peeve. Bugs me. In my last church, I remember we had a person that used such body language, and one day I just had had enough, and I said to him, you know, I would prefer if you just say it instead of showing it. He was cured. Immediately he was healed of it, and his job depended on it. <laughs> body language. I can, I can see it. Some of you are saying, I'm present. Some of you are saying, I'm not here. Some of you are saying, I'm teachable, or others, uh, I've heard all that. Some are saying, I care. Some are saying, I'm kind of indifferent. Some of you are saying, I have time. Others of you are saying, I'm too busy. Body language. The choir's going to sing a song at 11 o'clock that gets at the psalm, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. With my lips, with my life, with my heart and my hands, with my countenance. John Wooden was one of the most revered coaches in the history of college basketball, one of the wisest leaders as well. He credited his success on the court to his dad. He said when he was a child, he learned a very important lesson just by watching his father's countenance. And he tells this story. In the little rural Indiana County where he grew up, they would pay local farmers to take teams of mules or horses into the gravel pits and haul out carts, loads of gravel. And some of the pits were very deep and sometimes it was hard for a team to pull a wagon out of wet sand and up a steep bank. And one summer, says John, there was a young farmer that was trying to get his team of horses to pull the wagon out of the pit, and he couldn't do it. And he was whipping them, he was cursing them, and they were frothing at the mouth, they were stomping and jerking back, and, and the elder wooden took it as long as he could, and then he went over gently to the young man and said, let me take them for you. John said, my dad started talking to the horses, just mumbling, whispering, stroking, petting their noses with a soft touch. And then he walked gently between them and holding their bridles and bits, he continued to just whisper calmly, gently. And they settled down. And then in a couple of moments, he stepped out in front of them, and he gave them a little whistle and a little tongue in his mouth, and they began to move forward, and he held the reins. And little by little, those two plow horses edged that wagon out of the mire just as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. Over the years, said John, I've seen a lot of wise guys act like that angry young farmer with little restraint. 
And I learned that so much more can be accomplished with a calm and steady presence. And this is the lesson, he said, that I learned that day. It takes strength on the inside to be gentle on the outside. Somebody's been reading Proverbs 15 at the wooden house. It reminds me of something Jesus said. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that word meek, you know what it means? It doesn't mean weak. It means strength with a gentle touch. It's a portrait of Jesus. A Savior with calloused hands and a gentle caress. And his countenance is our peace. When I was growing up in MYF, and with this I close, we used to close every Sunday night, every Sunday evening, the same way. You know what we'd do? We'd cross our arms. Anybody remember this? <laughs> Teenagers, we'd cross our arms, we'd hold one another's hands, and we would recite a prayer, Aaron's prayer from Numbers 6, 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We prayed the same prayer every Sunday night. And on Monday morning, life happened. But we never started our week without his countenance. His strength on the inside enabled our gentleness on the outside. And it still does. And it still will. And we learned it at a tender age. I'm convinced the secret of wising up in a world that is dumbing down is the strength on the inside that becomes our shalom in our countenance. May it be so. In Jesus' name.